Standby like use 2 through 33, sound 1A through 7 on deck. Standby Q actors. Electrics, kill the blue run lights, please. Like you 2 and sound 1A, go. I think it's been such a huge progressive movement, and it's almost like a new revolution in itself. Everybody has always reached back and pulled up, and I also feel that's my responsibility as I get more successes to reach back and pull up. of Hang and Focus. Um, today we've got a extra or I have an extra special co-host with me. If you've been watching the show since the beginning or listening to the show since the beginning, you'll remember Taj Oates from our We Are Arizona Theatre Company episode. So Taj Oates is our assistant production manager and also the head of our Dive In Diversity Committee. We are focusing on how we as artists can be advocates. Um, and I think if you've been listening to all of our episodes of late uh, for the last few weeks, uh, we've been talking about these issues in a variety of different ways and have, have had a lot of artists in our shows who have brought up um, different issues within the theater industry and have kind of put forward a call to action as far as like this moment right now, we have this rare gift of having time which we never have time in the theater and that we need to use this time wisely we need to use this time to reevaluate the structures of systemic racism that are so rampant in our industry what does that look like to do that work uh, and and why it's so important absolutely so one of the first things that came out of that was this letter um, that was saying we see you, white American theater. Uh, we see the ways that you have been complicit. Taj, I'm wondering, like, what was your initial reaction to that letter? My initial reaction was very cathartic. Um, I, every line that I read, I felt resonate within me. Um, if not something that I personally experienced, something that I know someone else has personally experienced. Um, you know, the American theater industry has a long history of putting... Uh, Black Indigenous people of color on stage and profiting off of those, but not doing the work anywhere else to help them with those bodies, even off stage in their industries that they're res doing residencies in, that they're working in, that they're um, amongst their staff, amongst their crews. You know, it's it's very easy to say to present. Oh, this is what we're doing. We're being diverse. You can see it on our stage, mm -hmm. but what about every single other thing that we're doing? Does not is not example of that. One of the, my favorite quotes in this is about costume design and calling them out and how they're being paid to do, to do the full job of design. And yet when it comes to BIPOC, particularly BIPOC women, they just say, okay, you figure it out. Or you, you do what you know best and we'll just go with it. Right. And getting paid for not doing their entire job. Right. And, then, and therefore not compensating the artist for doing, having to do the additional labor on themselves. If that happens every show that you're in, how many hours of unpaid labor do you, do you accumulate over the course of a, a, a career? And what is that, what is that, that cost you as an individual even to just walk into that space and automatically feel like you're, you're not being treated the same way, you're not seen in the same way, and you're not being given the same attention or um, respect as an artist? One of the biggest things for people of color in the theater industry is tokenization mm -hmm. and how easily it is, how easy it exists because of how white the theater industry is, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
you know, we, again, we, we know what are things that we should be doing. So we, theater, we being theater organizations, will produce like a show of color, or a show written by a person of color, a show written by uh, an LGBTQ artist, et cetera, mm-hmm. or one show directed by a woman. People always ask like, when is, when is enough? Like when, are, when do we get to be done with the diversity conversation? Right. And for me, it's when there's not a conversation anymore. Stories are coming out or happening have happened for the past decade that we're now, are just not being dredged up because people are just now feeling comfortable enough to be able to speak out. Whereas before, the system was so dead set against them that even just speaking up against, the, against it meant that they could be out of blow. There's certainly a strength in numbers with people coming together that there's, a, there's, you're better able to advocate for yourselves. But what can we do to make sure that people feel comfortable advocating for themselves? Don't just listen to the fact that they are speaking up. Listen to what they're saying, why they're saying it, and what caused them to get to this point where this has now become an issue that they have to pick up against. People have the, the knee-jerk reaction of thinking that racism is like calling somebody the N-word or using a racial slur or uh, like actively not hiring someone because, of, because they are black and, no, and nothing else. There's so many other things rooted in racism that are both like textual and subtextual. Yeah. There are so many resources out there. It takes a simple Google search to find so many free resources out there in terms of deconstructing anti-racist organizations and also arts organizations. Yeah. And then there are like the paid experience that you can also get into and have true uh, training that will come out to you and do seminars with the organizations mm-hmm. to look at the actual process and system that you have in place that you don't even think about might be discriminatory because it's just what you've done. It's what you've always done or just how right. the game has always gone. But people don't realize that the game has always gone that way because the game is built for cisgendered white men. Mm-hmm. Right, we've normalized the inequality to such an extent that we don't always, we don't even recognize it. I think one of the challenges people, especially I think people who are just now waking up to the causes they're facing, are realizing that, oh my God, this thing is so much bigger than, than we even know. How do I even, I feel like anything I do now isn't going to be enough. And, you know, part of that is that to a certain extent, there will never be enough. I mean, that, you, that you can do on your own to fix the entirety of the white American theater industry. But you can, everything you can do will contribute. So there are ways you can start helping out. And yes, you might have been quiet for the past however many years you've been alive, but that's over. That's the past. It's now time for you to start being active, start making a change, start doing active things to make this a better system and a better, or a better industry for all kinds. Yeah. Um, I think that makes a great segue into our first interview. Um, I agree. <laughs> so our first interview coming up is with Catherine Campbell, who is the production manager at Mixed Blood Theater in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, Mixed Blood is known for being a social justice theater. Um, so they're really looking towards engineering ways to tell stories and to tell extent times where they're not predominantly cisgender, hetero, white male stories. They're redefining what a theater company's role is in this kind of work, what a, what the role of art is in this work, and then it extends, in that redefinition, um, it extends beyond just what's on the stage to what can this, what resources can this, this theater, this organization provide, and how can the organization as a whole uh, adhere to the missions and values that are present in the shows that they do, that they can take that to heart and, and embed that in the culture of the community they're creating. 
I'm here with Captain Campbell, who is the production manager at Mixed Blood Theater in Minneapolis. So for those of us who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about Mixed Blood Theater? Yeah, Mixed Blood Theater Company uh, was founded in 1976. So a long time ago, we're about to enter the 45th season of Mixed Blood. Uh, and it really focuses on the EDI lens of uh, new work and outreach and engagement. Uh, and the focus is started through the roots of MLK and social justice. I know that Mixed Blood has been very responsive to the death of George Floyd and what they can do to help their community. Um, so can, I help, can you kind of explain what some of their initiatives have been since, you know, in the past, what, 16 days since the incident? Yeah, it's been pretty quick. Uh, it's been a wild experience, especially being in the epicenter of where it occurred. I will say it's been uh, breathtaking and uh, alarming and a, a great way to see how quick the whole nation as well as the world is responding to this incident. Obviously, these incidents have been occurring for 400 years, uh, but being so closely related to the areas, um, especially being a pandemic, uh, Mixed Blood was really trying to figure out with our, our EDI lens and our social justice lens, how do we properly respond, one, when we're not producing theater, but two, when we have the resources to do that. Um, so some of the resources we launched, uh, we were a part of this group that we are, are not the foundation of, but it's called University Rebuild. University Rebuild, we were as a hub to store materials, and we were going around the city boarding up uh, POC, uh, small businesses and Black-owned businesses, because uh, Minneapolis was being looted, things were catching on fire, so trying to protect them as much as you can. So if you go through the city of Minneapolis, there's a lot of OSB and plywood all around. <laughs> Um, some are nicely decorated, some have some statements and uh, those kinds of things, but to protect those businesses. And some will not take them down until maybe the pandemic's actually over because they will not um, maybe be open. So just trying to protect those businesses. And that was founded by a few cohorts of technicians in the Twin Cities, but Mixed Blood was just being a hub for it. So props to those individuals. And then also at Mixed Blood, we have opened a food pantry that was inspired by the Cedar Riverside Youth which is a huge um, Somali location that's in the West Bank with mixed blood. And so the Somali youth had asked, uh, can we have two tables of food upstairs in the rehearsal room? And I said, yeah, like all the snacks, all 100%. And then as we were uh, boarding up different buildings across the city, I came back to the theater and two floors were filled with food and cleaning supplies. We've served uh, almost 2,000 people in just over a week, uh, families and supporting other shelters and places across the city. Um, and made a lot of connections that way. Another initiative that's launching this week is called Mixed Blood Responds, which hopefully goes longer than this five to 10 week span. Uh, we're hiring artists with a grant that we have received to respond as POC artists to the current um, moment in time, as well as continue, because each week will change dramatically. So they're doing poetry, monologues, songs, performances. Uh, someone that we're launching uh, this week is uh, Native American and they were sewing something and writing this wonderful phrase on it and had poetry in the back. And so some of these things that are submitted are really great. What are some of the things that Mixed Blood does both internally to their organization and then also externally in their programming that you feel speak towards their values in terms of the EDI movement? Yeah, so um, internally, I would say uh, from a theatrical perspective, all of our productions are typically POC written or POC driven. So the message really focuses on that lens. And I think that's very important. Externally, we work with a lot of the local theater companies that do not have space. And so we partner with them or we extend our space for rentals. So there's this beautiful company called Theater Moo, which is one of the Asian American okay. theaters. And so they do a lot of their performances in our space. And so uh, they're kind of like our sister um, theater in the neighborhood that we align with a lot. So we do a lot of partnerships with them. 
We also, with the Cedar Riverside community, have a lot of external relations with health programming, as well as um, artistic concerts and events like that. We also have three uh, committees with uh, Mixed Blood, which are the Latinx Council, we have the Trans Advisory Council, and we have the um, Disability Advisory Council. And so each of those councils have representatives that identify with that community or work with that community in some form. Um, and that's beyond the board so that they can represent and give their um, thoughts and feedback on a lot of our paperwork, on a lot of our uh, approaches to day-to-day -day things, even production. So they could come in and say, you know, your super titles and your audio description needs improvement for this community. Or we think it would be great if your paperwork for fittings or, or restrooms or this were kind of outlined in this way because it's speaking to this way in this community. And sometimes as someone who doesn't identify in all of those fashion, may not catch that. So it's great to have those resources on site. I know that as soon as this incident happened, there was a kind of staggering of responses from good organizations across the country, including down to creating this list of good organizations all across the country up to, I think uh, last time was 400 different organizations of yep. what their response was, how long did it take for them to make the response? And then not only that, what are the demographics of the company? Um, and then beyond that, as soon as that, as this organization started catching on to that, started speaking up, other artists are speaking up of different marginalized groups to say, so you're saying this, but then here's what you were doing in the past. So what's your response to a lot of these calling outs, calling ins, the superior addressing of issues that people say they do on one end and then don't do what they're actually on the other? Yeah, um, I would say a lot of statements are going out. And a lot of the statements, I really admire them when they're from more people than the executive managing artistic team. And I do think some of those are very genuine, uh, but some of them are very blanket statements. And uh, you, you obviously want to acknowledge that it's a new step that they're taking in this direction, but I really want to see what they're activating beyond that, beyond just a statement beyond just the one week of activation. And that's what we were talking about with some of our initiatives is we can't be done after one week and this needs to continue further because what's, what happens with a lot of these um, incidents that occur across the country and the reactions is you, with social media and platforms, you get the reaction you need from your audiences and your members and your followers for one week. And then they're like, great, we made our statement, we're moving on, but this isn't the point to do that. Like, <laughs> you got to do more than that. And so it's almost like, almost like people's mission statements where they put equity, diversity, and inclusion in them, but are they actually included in the day-to-day -day protocol? Or are you just putting that in there because that's what has been asked for by the American theater? So I really want to see over the next year as we navigate through the pandemic and this, if people start to change their season, what other programs are happening beyond uh, uh, reaching their specific um, audience demographic? And so how are they also hitting, excuse me, reaching out to their audience demographic uh, that is an older uh, stereotypical white audience and teaching them with these uh, pieces of work or just snippets of things? And how are they activating more of their uh, BIPOC artists to take part and take initiative in some form. And I, I will say as much as that work is on the front line for us, we have work that we need to navigate and figure out and we are home to a lot of that. And uh, we have statements that we've been putting out for years, but like these last, you know, 16 days of doing this work, like we need to do this for the next 365 days. So as I said before, like we're the helpers, not the saviors right now. And we shouldn't be like, great, like wrote out the statement, like, <laughs> <laughs> done it'll go back to who's on your staff 
what season you're producing, who are you plugging into uh, beyond who you're hiring, and like what are you taking part in for your staff to learn more? And I think professional development is something that we're not that great at in theaters and how are we uh, providing that to our staff is huge. Well, I think also, like you said, talking about the professional development, it's a lot about how even if you're, that staff member leaves within, they take the training and they leave the next year, that is now one more person out in the industry that has that knowledge that you've given them that can then help deconstruct the structure of other organizations. And that's what I think I do value, at least that Mixed has had for me, as the artists that we've worked with across the country. Like, we, what's ironic is Mixed is known as a theater known nationally for what we do, but some people have never been here. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, it's, we're known, but we're not attended sometimes, and I mean that respectfully. Um, but that if someone has come performed here, that we do leave a, a, an impact on them in some way, or they do get to work on a show that's not your stereotypical, uh, I will not name the shows if someone watches this and it's in their season. <laughs> but we all know like, I could list, but that it's, it's something that's personal and digs in a little deeper. What I need to see happen, I would like to see happen is uh, uh, that some new, newer, fresher artistic directors are doing is rechanging the scope of what previous institutions have been known for. And so not doing the classics and telling their audience, this is what needs to be seen. We're done seeing X, Y, or Z. We need to show you a new way of life and not that those older works aren't respected, but um, you know, there's so many artists that need to be amplified and their voices need to be heard. So uh, the other thing though at Mixed Blood is we have a radical hospitality program, which people can come for free to any show which does help because the audiences are we're trying to reach are younger audiences as well. And theater is expensive. I mean, a theater ticket could cost a minimum of $50 and I can't pay for shows a month and I want to see 10 shows. And so having that free program allows access to individuals. And I think that's really important that we hold true to so that each person of a different identity uh, or background doesn't feel held back to take part in arts and culture that seems like a leisure or high class activity. And that's what I'm nervous about after the pandemic is that it'll turn back to that. So I hope we can be like, we need to be accessible to more people and not, we need to only have 200 seats. So the ticket's $200 each, you know, so. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to mention before we uh, sign off? I do want to give a shout out to Blackout Improv. I'm actually wearing their shirt. So I'm <laughs> with the kids. Uh, they're, they're a local group in Minneapolis, uh, so you should check them out. They actually perform at Mixed Blood typically uh, monthly, but obviously during this pandemic, it's taking a shift. Um, it's an all-black improv group, and they talk a lot about the same issues we just talked about today. So check them out or donate that cash. But I would say uh, uh, keep reading, keep activating, uh, keep doing the work if you can, or, or even just having those tough conversations, whether you have to lead them or not. And uh, uh, don't be afraid to push the envelope a little bit for EDI work because it's needed. And uh, we need to make sure we're taking responsibility for that. I think it's so great to hear from a company that has been doing this work for the past 45 years. She said they started in 1976. Um, I think right now, so many companies are just kind of waking up and reacting to what's going on in the world. It's incredible to see what this work actually looks like when you've been doing it for that long and when it's been ingrained in your practices and that your whole theater company is based on this mission of social justice. One thing I love about what they do is that their theater is accessible. Like they, 
in such a way that they don't necessarily need every patient to buy a ticket in order for them to be able to see the twist the show and have the experience they need to have. And I feel like that kind of education does so much more for the community in terms of being able to uplift them, make sure that the community as a whole is having these discussions and not just in these, you know, uh, elitist circles. We do believe as a theater industry that theater is powerful and that can change lives and change the world. Um, but if we don't build structures around that, that support the change that, it, that theater can do, that support our community, then that we're kind of, we're siphoning off useless <laughs> energy that we could channel into something that's really beautiful and productive. Absolutely. You know, I think it's, it's very easy to react to what's going, on, what's going on in the world, but it's very hard to keep that reaction, keep the steam of that reaction and build that into uh, policy. Yeah, I also really appreciate that even though um, they're kind of experts in this field a little bit and that they've been doing this work for so long, um, Catherine still took the time to say, look, like we're, we don't have, every, we don't have all the answers, you know, we're still learning, we're still looking at the ways that we've fallen short. And you might make mistakes sometimes, and that's okay. You will, you will never do everything right the first time. The important part is that you learn from your mistakes and learn not, not to do it again and learn how to adapt and move forward from that. And so in this first interview, we talk to Catherine because we wanted a theater company's perspective. What as an institution, a theater institution, can you can you be doing what what does that work look like um so now we want to talk to an individual artist uh so this is an interview with uh me and will We're talking to diana barbano um diana was amalia and american mariachi which we did last season wow diana is a latinx playwright and actor and she talks a lot about what it's like being a bipoc playwright um and actor in the community and also what it's like to be a person of color and a community of people of color and how to help uplift each other and how to help make sure that we're all moving forward. We're all taking this work and kind of, as we, I think she says, as she moves forward, she has the hand back, make sure that she's helping someone else up the ladder as she goes. I am a Colombian immigrant. I came to this country when I was three. Um, I got put into theater because I list pretty badly. I still lisp. I, I, they never got rid of it. But I, that's initially why I got put into the theater. And I, I just loved it. It's not a huge tradition in my country for people to do theater. It's still kind of something that you do, uh, you know, under the table, because, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure why, because there's some really fantastic theater artists in Colombia. Um, but I've been working as an equity actor since I was 19 years old. Um, I started to write when, frankly, I got older and the parts sort of disappeared. They hadn't been great to begin with, but then they disappeared. <laughs> and so uh, I started to write, and then I just realized that what I really enjoyed was writing for Latinx women, specifically. Just that was, That's always been my thing, just bringing great roles for Latinx women. With, with the Latinx community, especially in the theater, it's a lot of connection. I've known Jose Cruz Gonzalez since I was 22. Oh, wow, I know that. Yeah, and we've worked together and apart, and we always have been in each other's circles. So it, it's a real community. Um, and I think part of being part of that community is always advocating for ourselves because there has been so little um, really theater in the mainstream for Latinx people. So you, you kind of become sort of chingonas together. Like you're always saying, hey, how are you doing? Can I support you? I'll fly out to, I'll see if I can get some money together, fly out to Chicago and support your show. 
just because it's been such a, a kind of a hard road to to how to push into that so but community has always been important to me because I've been supported by community you know I, I'm a writer um, a playwright and my playwriting I have been as successful as I have been because Jose Cruz Gonzalez literally said, hey, here's an opportunity I can't take. Do you want it? Octavio Solis said, here's an opportunity I can't take. Do you want it? You know, Luis Alfaro, they all, everybody has always reached back and pulled up. And I also feel that's my responsibility as I get more successes to reach back and pull up. So it, it's just part, it's sort of ingrained in how uh, I think we make theater as a community. I remember the, the very first Latinx show I got to work on, actually the second one, the first one I got to actually build was uh, The River Bride. No. Oh, um, directed yes. by Kenan Valdez, who is descended from legend from uh, Latinx theater legends. Yes. Um, and the very first thing he said was, I want everyone to get together in a circle and talk about love. And yeah. before we even like had a table read before you even like knew each other's names really, it was let's talk, let's share this like, kind of experience with each other. Mm -hmm. I feel like that kind of experience is was so brand new to me in terms of like how people approach theater. I feel like that is very ingrained in this community of how much it is about a family, about love, and how much we, how much they do support each other. Fornes is like our, a mother of a lot of, of us in this community. I didn't work with her directly, but I've worked with people who've worked with her and her approach was really about community, about love, you're right, about being holistic, about approaching it as a, I mean, we love to do theater, right? Because none of us are getting rich. So you better <laughs> step into that room really, really, really having a huge heart for what you do. You were a part of American Mariachi, which is one of our biggest selling shows at APC. Nice. And it was a show that was entirely Latinx, plotline, cast, uh, predominantly creative team. Mm -hmm. um, what was that kind of, what was that experience like for you, for you coming into it? Well, it was huge, actually, because it was, I think, the first time that it had been such a holistically Latinx story that, if you'll excuse the expression, wasn't trauma porn based. Yes. You know? It was, it was, um, it had uplift and it was really a beautiful story and it wasn't about border crossing and it was just, it was a story about a family. We all kind of went in going, oh, we can just breathe into this story and tell a story as opposed to having to like rip ourselves apart. Does that make sense? There's oh, yeah. A yeah, especially as a Latinx actor, a lot of times you're sort of just asked to to do a lot of suffering. <laughs> it was really great to be in a show where you could just enjoy it and, and glow in it. Well, especially that like a, it's a story of like family and love and relations and music that relates to everyone. And just because it was told through the eyes of a Latinx uh, family, does that mean that it was not relatable to the rest of, the, of our community? That's and exactly right. Exactly right. As a playwright of color, how do you how do you approach the writing process and, and like the and working with directors who may not be of the same background as you that you have to kind of help explain to them what where you're coming from? I I encourage a lot of listening. I mean, I had to work with a lot of playwrights who were not Latinx, and sometimes bridging the cultural gap is a lot bigger than you would think. That sounds like, oh, that's, but everybody's a creative and we're all, you know, but there is a cultural gap sometimes um, that can extend to small things just like, well, can you translate that for me? I said, no, I'm not going to because I don't want you to understand what it means. It's okay if you don't understand what I'm writing because that's part of me challenging you who does not speak Spanish as an audience member. I mean, it's little things. So I am definitely a collaborator. I'm very open. And, but I, I'm pretty firm on like, okay, this is, 
important. So you're going to have to, if you're not going to listen to me, let's talk to our actors and see how they feel about this. And let's all uh, come in on this. Luckily, I mean, most of the time I've been pretty lucky with having collaborators that are very open to listening, but I got to be honest, I breathe a sigh of relief when I walk in and it's the Latinx director. Cause I'm like, okay, that's a humongous step I don't have to take. Now we can just talk and, you know, exist in the room. I feel like I'm good. I'm really good with people, but I'm also becoming a little less, um, I take a little less compromise and, and that's also being a woman, you know, is finally being able to just hold firm and say no. And the surprise of people going, Oh, okay. Oh, okay, great. No, then no, <laughs> no again. So there's a lot of power in just being able to like, just breathe and hold your ground that I think I'm really excited to see that people much younger than me don't seem to have that like little hesitation issue. And it makes me so happy that, that you like, especially young people are just like, no, what? Let's talk about that. Let's fight. I love it when they fight back with me and I learn things, you know, cause I'm like, okay, you're right. Yes. Great. Let's move on. Let's do it. When you're pitching a show, do you have to feel like you have to sanitize or kind of clean it up or essentially whitewash the show for it to be presentable? And where do you kind of feel like you have to, you do hold your ground as an artist and feel like it is important for you to hold your ground? Luckily for me, the plays that have become, my plays that have sort of become popular are pretty, um, what's the word, Con confrontational already. So I, I feel like I can luckily come in and, and be like, well, you read Ghosts of Bogota, you know where I stand on this, this and this. Otherwise you wouldn't have called me in to talk about it, right? Um, I mean, one of the big things that, that I feel is important, of course, casting, of course, casting. Um, I've, I, cause I have a, a play where a character, it's really funny because I've, it's funny because I've written plays where they're not character specified and people character specify them for me in ethnicity, in ways that I always want to go. So why did you think that was a black actor? Just tell me, I'm really curious, like why you thought that was a black actor. And it's really funny to, to see what the process is because, um, that it's interesting to see what people's prejudices are in the way the characters behave. And so, so that's my, my, I think the greatest gift to me as a writer is that I can pull back on that and say, well, let's think about that that character is actually this. And then if that character is actually this, what kind of actor would you bring in for me? You know? So that's, that's something that, that I've had to really work with. Uh, and, and also, People are very surprised. People on the side of the table are really surprised at the variety of Latinx actors I can bring in. Oh, yeah. Like, it's not just a spitfire and a good girl. Like, I got some really amazing actors that I know that can do work that would blow your socks off. And that's the one thing that even at auditions, people come up to me and say, thank you. I've never, I've never done anything like this. I've never played a primatologist. You know, I've never... I've never played a TV showrunner who's such a jerk, you know? That's my favorite character I've ever written. She's awful. She's practically unredeemable. She's unlikable and she's brilliant. And, and that's not something you see that often for Latinx women to be able to play, you know? So. So how do you generally, in your character descriptions, do you now take, do you take a specific approach to specifying uh, gender, uh, ethnicity, any of those sorts of things? Or? I do, I do, I do, um, I, I do. I, I have a play that's being done, uh, was done in San Francisco at the Playground Festival and is, um, it's being done again at uh, San Diego Rep. It's, uh, I do specify that there are two Latinx women. I don't specify what country they're from because I want the two actresses who play the characters to uh, 
come up with it themselves. I don't know if this is going to work, but I feel like it would be really interesting if across the country, Puerto Rican actresses could be Puerto Rican, Mexican actresses could be Mexican or Dominican actresses. You know what I mean? I just wanted oh, to yeah. give them that freedom, but it has to be Latinx. I wrote a part for an orangutan and that I have to be very specific that it has to be like a certain young white girl or young white non-binary person and do not be very mindful because we're not going to politicize or or do any kind of thing with this character and that was a lesson that sort of um mm, that was a, a lesson that i learned about how specific i have to be when i write a character like that because the things the, i'm not saying that anybody has uh well i don't know but the things that can be done with that character that uh really shocked me um made me know that i have to have a lot of control on how that casting goes over time, uh, you have seen a shift in how people look for work from uh, writers of color or um, for how producers may approach you differently than they did before. I'm still primarily approached by small theaters that have artistic directors of color uh, in leadership. That's generally where I get approached. Um, if I am approached by some of the larger theaters, uh, it's usually <clears throat> to do staged readings. Um, that, that seems to be like a, a comfortable place for my work to, to live. Do you think in the world of digital theater that we're moving into currently that there is more of a platform for uh, marginalized uh, playwrights to produce their work? And do you know any places that are doing that? What I've noticed, Taj, and I think you've noticed it too, is that those of us who work with smaller, um, diverse theater companies are the ones who have put stuff out there right away. Right, like my, my company was the first one to do an online digital reading, my Latinx company in Santa Ana, and we just get on there and do it. It's like we're not hamstrung by budgets or, or our board or our subscriber base. It's just like, okay, let's do it. Let's get, let's do this. Let's do something exciting because it doesn't cost anything and we have this platform. I, I think it's kind of exciting, actually. I mean, I hate Zoom, let's be honest. <laughs> stare at a screen for, you know, but, but on the other hand, the way it's sort of, levels of playing field is pretty interesting. It's interesting because it, it, it um, almost benefits those who've had to be scrappy the whole time, right? Those who've, who have like pounded the pavement <laughs> their whole career. Totally. Are totally used to what's going on right now. Totally, yeah. Well, when you're producing with no resources, it's not hard to do. Are there other things that you and your communities of playwrights of LA and whatever, all the communities you're in could need, want? We always need support. We need to use this time where we are on pause to figure out how do we reach the audiences we want. We can share a lot of, I think, in this moment, especially of pra good practices and um, conversations, especially around racial diversity. And it's a moment, I think, that we can come together as a theatrical community and really decide how we're gonna go towards the future. I nurture a lot of young writers and I, I'm, all, I'm constantly going, go, just come on, out of the nest, out of the nest. You're so good. And because I feel like when you're a person of color, there, there's a lot of internalized, I think I, I said it yesterday, it's like internalized grief and shame about your stuff because maybe you didn't have professors of color or who understood where you were coming from or understood that the way you, you wrote is you're not being ungrammatical, you're, you're writing a character, you know, there, there are things right. that I feel like I'm constantly trying to like, take, put people back together from these little woundings that they, that happened to them in the larger community by people who just 
maybe aren't quite as tuned into how young people of color are doing things that's different. And like I say, I get corrected all the time. And of course, like anybody, my first impulse is, how dare you? And my second impulse, which I always try to breathe through is like, yes, you have to hear that. You have to hear that criticism. You said something that deserved to be criticized, hear the criticism and take it in, right? I mean, that's really hard. I'm no saint, I promise you. And it's like, you know, but I feel, I feel like if I've learned anything in this whole moment, it's you, you got to take those little things and really internalize them, listen and figure out why you reacted the way you did and how you can react differently the next time. You know, we're, we're definitely in a place currently looking at the American theater scene as a whole and how can we really take the time that we have due to COVID to reconstruct how we process mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. I think people are not realizing how, so, how deep so much of these uh, systems of oppression run within the theater community of itself. You know, it's at its core, theater is an art for rich people by poor people. Right. And so how do we deconstruct that? How do we make that into something that is sustainable? So what do you feel as an artist leaders can do at, at this time and moving forward to become advocates for people to better promote uh, artists of color, female artists, uh, LGBTQ artists, where people that are, that are constantly marginalized people to have a place in this society and in this industry that we pretend to be is so open and so welcoming. You have to open up the artistic leadership. You have to open up the, the, the artistic side of the room to people of color. You have to open up the board yeah, we have to not be, I, and believe me, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna, but we have got to stop making it a, this money-based need and these board members that um, are coming from a whole different place in their head than perhaps the audience that we need to reach and who could, would support us. You know, like these board members, the board, I'm speaking specifically of where I come from. So I know we all have differences, but the board members where I come from live a very different existence from the population where the theater is. Very different existence. So this population needs to belong on the board and this, the board can't, the, the, there can't be, uh, the power dynamic has to shift, right? And how's that going to happen? That's going to, it's going to be ripping off some band-aids and, doing some things that it's not gonna, it's, it's gonna be kind of ugly. So since we're all stuck inside, it's a good time to have the fight, right? Cause what, what the heck else are we doing? <laughs> twiddle, 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 twiddle. It's a, it's a good time to have the conversations and, and maybe once every, you know, let, let everybody get mad. Cause I know people are mad at me, Hoy. but let everybody get mad and then go back in. It's okay to be mad, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I was raised never to fight with people. And yeah. I think it's really damaging. I think fighting with people is good. I think you fight, you clear air, you rip open, you, and then things get rebuilt on top of the fight. That's like your honesty, right? Like that's when you're being the most honest about what you're feeling at least, whether it's true. Yeah, yeah, totally. But, and you can only change what you, what you are, are open to having kind of discussions until yeah. you're even able to begin to listen right. and not just react and say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not racist, I can't be discriminatory I haven't done anything like think about what people are saying about why you've done this and take the account look for that and acknowledge that and then think about what you need to move forward from that I saw something on the news this morning and saying that everyone should be required to put um the picture of their board like just list a picture of their board I thought that would be such an interesting thing that would <laughs> so, level so many uh, that would be interesting I mean yeah. there's even one of those that was uh, all BFA classes and how many like BFA acting classes are at these conservatories that people are paying 
well over a hundred thousand dollars to go to that are all that are predominantly white and maybe have one or two minorities. Yeah. Then those two bunch of minorities do not get cast on a lot of these shows and go through this whole four years of program to be in, be in the ensemble and not get opportunities. And then yeah. well, that's, what they should, that, that's what they should deserve. And that's what they should be happy for getting that opportunity in and of itself. It breaks my heart that it's still happening. I was the only person of color in my acting conservatory uh, way like back when Madonna hadn't had any plastic surgery. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and even the, and then afterwards it was like, oh, I'm not getting, ca I used to get cast. I never played a Latinx part. You know, because it was the era of, oh, let's be colorblind. Oh, let's not see. So I never played that. But then when I got out of conservatory and started to work, I only, I had to make sure my Spanish was good because those were the only parts I was playing on, in theater, on television, everywhere. It was like, you are a Latina. You are a gang member or you are, you know, oh my God. I spent a whole, so much time with like my eyebrows sketched up to here and, you know, oh my, I, like there's a whole era on IMDb that you do not want to see. <laughs> I'm like, what am I, you know, but, and then you're young thinking, but I have to work. And then you get older and you're like, no, you don't have to worry that bad. Mm -hmm. You can say no, you can say no to another, yet another gang member or gang member's mother. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to, I think, I think I'm looking forward to the conversations. I'm looking forward to the fights. I'm sort of uh, um, interested and I'm also, happy to hold back and because right now what we're talking about is black lives and I think that's really important and in my own community we have so much work to do about colorism and uh, Afro, a, a disinclusion of the Afro-Latinx community as well and all of us have a lot of you know we, we talk a lot about passing and we talk a lot about who's darker and who's who's you know native and although we don't say native I'm you know what I mean? It's a real, it's a conversation that we all have to have. So we can't, the Latinx community can't sit there going, oh, well, us, you know, us too. We have so much work to do. So, so much work to do. Um, your email signature is a great reminder that an email signature is really important because I went down a rabbit hole for a very <laughs> long time. And I was really interested in the, um, our, uh, what's it called? Our season of lost Latinx plays. That list was really fascinating. And it was, Almost more fascinating to think about the year we would have had, right? The, that it was celebrating. Brian Herrera put that list together, and I thought it was really important uh, because we were all so. I mean, all of us, right? We're in mourning about what plays weren't going to get done, but it really was something to see how many people were having world premieres um, from the Latinx community, and how it was really, <laughs> it was really a big year uh, for for everybody because um, it does feel like, wow, why did it have to go on pause now? Now that it felt like we're finally going, cracking through. It needs to be all the time. It needs to be all the time. We can't just do one Latinx play and one black play and, and you know, one queer play and call it a day. That's can't be mm -hmm. for no checklist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Diana, for talking with us. You are so, so inspiring. And thank you for the work you do with, with young people and encouraging them to get out and share their voices. Just thank you. I, I just want to reiterate how much fun I had in Arizona and uh, how wonderful it was and how what great people that I met. And, and I'm just honored to be here. Thank you. We will see you soon, I'm sure. I hope so. I hope so. We are talking about becoming anti-racist. Um, we are talking about things institutions and individual artists and arts administrators can do. Um, so I'd like for us to try and model some of that in real time here between Taj and I. So let's talk about something that we actively in our 
company and our work um, that we do together that we can challenge and do better. For me, the, the number one thing I think, not just ATC, but every theater organization can do in general, is abolishing the unpaid internship model. Mm -hmm. And not just the internships themselves, but their requirements in terms of job hiring and the requirements in terms of transitions in terms of graduation. Mm -hmm. Because what, we, what ends up being hap happening is that we have organizations like ATC, we are very complicit in this, <coughs> where we will hire interns to potentially work a 40 hour week, more or less. Um, sometimes less, sometimes it's a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, paying them a minimum stipend that covers, that we say covers their, uh, is a contribution towards uh, living expenses, not an actual salary, and not a living salary even that. Um, asking to relocate without a house, without any kind of housing allowance, mm -hmm. and expecting them to be able to dedicate their time to work, their entire potential life for the next nine months to working for us. It's one of those things that is so prevalent in the theater industry in terms of how to get the job. That's how it works. Not everyone has that ability. And so when you have these internships that are very inaccessible to, to people who are not of a somewhat wealthy background or have somewhat of a financially stable fall plan, fallback plan, there's no way to actually get to the next step of the industry. It's something that I think requires a lot of financial moving around with things. Mm -hmm. But I think something that if you want this to, if you believe this is a priority for organization to be a anti-racist community that promotes diversity, that promotes the next generation of artists, this is what you have to do, is being able to allow artists to get into that field in the first place. As a Lort Theater who offers an internship program, we're certainly complicit in this as well. Um, so we are, we are working to and our unpaid internship program, which starts with saying that we've had unpaid interns in the past and we've been part of this problem. Um, and so now we're looking at how we can restructure our organization in order to rebuild so that our programs can be more accessible to everybody. I think the internship is so important, not just because it sets up for the rest of your career, but because it's that person's first experience in the industry in work working and and learning alongside professionals and so whatever the values of our, your institution and how they show up that in that in, in that internship are going to shape the way that that person feels about the industry that what that person thinks is normal and acceptable within the industry um, and so I think those pieces of the puzzle are so important too and that ultimately like internships need to be an educational experience and not free labor and I think you know being a director of education at a Lort Theater, I feel that I have a certain amount of power in this conversation and I have a certain amount of um, responsibility in this conversation to, to actually make change. You know, this is an example of a time when I do have power and privilege and that I need to use that power and privilege to, to make the situation better. Oh, 100%. I mean, across the board for any, everybody involved in the theater industry, are that we have to seriously take a look at ourselves and see what are we doing that is not being conducive to becoming an anti-racist organization. Accountability is acknowledging the mistakes you made in the past and taking that information into account moving forward with your decision-making process. And that you have to break through your own insecurities, your own um, thoughts, your own uh, 
presupposed notions about how race and ethnicity and uh, gender identity and all these different things work in order to realize where you have been at fault and where you have been complicit. Mm -hmm. And until you're ready to have that conversation with yourself and with your staff and with your board, board here is very key, I think, change will not come. Um, I think before we go to the call board, one thing I want to bring up is the uh, those of you who are just now looking to get educated in anti-racist uh, processes and movements, there's a website titled uh, wherechangestarted.com, which is where they're hosting a series of documents uh, called the Anti-Racism Starter Kit. And so these this is one example of uh, a resource you can use to start educating yourself on what American racism actually really, really looks like, and not just what we think it's like based off of media, but that there are things in their everyday life that are inherently racist that we might not have any idea about. And so that is it. one of the places you can start to educate yourself on, but there are many more. I encourage you to research, Google, uh, Audible, whatever, podcasts, however you choose to receive information. It's all out there. It has been out there. So do your, do your homework. Do the, do the work it takes to go and find out what it means to be a non-racist individual. Do your homework. Stay accountable. Have hard conversations. Tear down the structures and rebuild them to be anti-racist. And have a lovely day, everybody. <laughs> you are. You are. You are. I am. I am. I am. We are. We are. We are. Arizona. Theater. Arizona Theater Company. This podcast was produced by Arizona Theater Company.